Hi everybody, welcome to the Overeaters Anonymous Recovery from Relapse meeting. My name is Rita Q and today it is it's Tuesday, sorry, 3rd of August 2021. And today we have a speaker, Danielle G. Danielle is currently living in Toronto, in Ontario, and she came to OA in November 2010. And Danielle, you can uh, take over the floor now to share your experience, strength and hope. Thanks, Danielle. Incredible, incredible. So glad to be here with you all this morning. Rita, you are a lifesaver. Absolutely wonderful. I had this down in my calendar for Thursday and I was ready for Thursday. Not necessarily ready for Tuesday, but we not, we're not ready. We got to get ready. So here I am. Um, going to kind of calm myself a bit. I've been listening to everything and that's helped. But I like to say a prayer every time I get the opportunity to share a long lead that is simple as God fill my mouth with all your stuff and shut it when I've said enough. That's it. And that's all. So <laughs> I can see that I can share my screen and I have a couple of pictures that I am going to try to share with you all. And you let me know if you can see that thumbs up, if you can see those. Awesome. I see the thumbs up. So this is me prior to finding my way to OA, as Rita shared, in November of 2010. So I love to take the format of exactly what you said, Rita, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now as I share my story. Danielle, recovering compulsive overeater. I probably came to begin compulsively eating around the age of five. Um, not to go into too much detail, but it was around that time when I started to um, experience sexual abuse. And I didn't know how to process what was happening to my body. My mother was dropping my sister and I off to a friend's house as she was working and doing other things. I was raised by my mother and grandmother primarily. My father kind of had a hand in my upbringing and wasn't always around as he was struggling with drug addiction. Um, and so I started to experience um, this abuse happening to my body and I did not know how to process it. But what I did know how to do was reach for candy. And that was one of the first loves of my life. I will tell you all, I ate candy, 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 candy from probably the age of five until I showed up here to these rooms, to be quite honest. But in those earlier years of my life, it was, it was what I went to. I was a very awkward child. I didn't always know how to be myself in rooms full of people and classrooms and you know, my neighborhoods where there were other children. Like I just didn't know how to fit in. And so I found myself finding comfort in my bedroom. And the scene played out so many times of me being in my bedroom with either music or TV or something and food. And that's how I came to understand myself. And I have one memory in particular where there was a, a small, what we call variety store um, in, the, in the US where I grew up, a candy store, a little local candy store. And I can remember one time getting some money from my mother and I went to this store and I spent every single dime that I had on candy and food and all kinds of other things. And I came back up in my room and I spread this out all on my bed. And I remember looking at all of this and thinking, okay, this is what it feels like to be loved. This is what it feels like to actually have everything I need. And I had a younger sister. I have a younger sister who does not have any issues with food at all. And we joke sometimes that I didn't let her develop issues with food because I didn't share. I ate everything, like even her food sometimes when we were, when we were together. 
And it just was interesting how I lived in my own world for much of my um, adolescence. And of course, as I would go to school over the years, I watched myself become um, bigger than not only the students, by the time I got into like my middle school classes, I was even bigger than my teachers. And I remember there was a day when I think I was in about fifth grade, and I hope they don't do this anymore, but who knows, but we used to be weighed in gym class in front of everybody. And so I remember us lining up, all of us students, and stepping on the scale and then stepping off and our gym teacher at that time writing down our weight. And so I can remember all the other students were going, they were stepping on the scale, they were 70 pounds, they were 80 pounds, we were in fifth grade. And I remember stepping on the scale and I was about 120 plus pounds. And I remember my gym teacher turning and looking at me kind of startled by that. And it was one of the most embarrassing moments that I've had around my weight. And I can remember even then after leaving that experience and us going to our cafeteria and, our, and having lunch that I just, I was shoveling it in like food was what I used to combat the feelings and that carried on that weight increased of course by the time I got to eighth grade I think I was weighing about 170 pounds I remember also entering into high school where I had to have a physical because I was interested in playing a sport and by the time I got to high school I was well over 200 pounds and it continued, it continued. And of course, high school is hard for anyone. At least I'll bring it into my own heart and say it was very challenging for me. And I also saw it be challenging for those of us who were at what was considered to be a normal body weight, a healthy body weight. And so in my high school years, I just, I completely pulled away from everyone. I also started working fast food jobs that were like, it was just like my fix to me. I could go to work. I could be compensated for work and I could eat the entire time that I was working in some of these fast food settings. So I thought I really had hit the jackpot in that way. And I have some really like interesting stories around some of my experiences in some of these fast food restaurants. I remember one time I was working and I took a hot piece of food like right out of the fryer and tried my best to throw it in my mouth before I had to go and do my next task. And I ended up burning the roof of my mouth so bad that all the skin pretty much kind of came off of there. And I had to sit in pain with a swollen roof of my mouth while I continued working. And that was some of what compulsive eating did for me. And after high school, I went right into college and I remember this weirdly enough, but by the time I got to college, I also had another physical before my university classes started for my health insurance to kick in. And I was about 221 pounds at that time. And after my first year in university, I ended up meeting a guy who I will not call a compulsive eater. He only can call himself that. However, I'll say that he and I ate compulsively together. And after our first year of being in a relationship together, we each had equally put on about a hundred pounds. He was actually in school to become a chef. And so again, I feel like he became a dealer of sorts for me. He would go to school. He would be learning how to prepare meals and things like that. And he'd be bringing home some of the things that he was having in his workplace and we'd eat it together. And I just watched my weight completely balloon. And by the time I was 24 years old, 
I was weighing almost 400 pounds. I was wearing, I believe, a size 28, 30 shirt. And I believe I was wearing about actually a 28, 30 pair of pants. And I was wearing about a 4X shirt. And I had to get my clothing from consignment shops because I couldn't just go into a regular store and purchase any clothing. And I'm talking about the weight, not because the weight is is the big thing here. At any weight, someone could find serenity and sanity. So I have no judgment about the weight. I'm only speaking in specifics about the weight because it really came to define for me where I was mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I saw my weight continue to balloon because I wasn't dealing with what was going on inside of my mind. There was the abuse that I experienced. There was the horrible family relations and dynamics that I had going on. There was the insecurity. There was the fear. There was the frustration. There was the angst. There was depression. There was all these things taking place inside of my mind that I refused to address. And instead of addressing them, I just watched myself continue to gain more weight as I tried to eat them away. And by the time I turned 25, as I mentioned, I was almost weighing 400 pounds. I was in a relationship with the individual that I mentioned. He was almost weighing 500 pounds. Um, And he ended up working in a, um, he ended up working in a kitchen where he got really great health insurance. And his supervisor had a conversation with him about considering gastric bypass surgery. And his insurance covered that for him. He was able to get that. And I also, you know, of course, reached out to my insurance to see if I could do the same. And I was denied. And so being a compulsive overeater, I got the opportunity to support and watch someone go through a gastric bypass surgery. I was there with him from the day he had the surgery to when he came home and his stomach was about the size of a baby's fist. He couldn't eat the same foods that he once ate. I watched him cry as a result of not being able to eat the ways that we had ate together. I supported him through it. I was jealous quite frankly, because there were weeks where I'd watched him release 40 pounds in a week, you know, there were, it it just was like nothing I ever saw before in my life. And I, he and I shortly after ended our relationship. And quite frankly, I do think that it was because of jealousy and there were all kinds of other things going on there too, that made it an unsafe environment for both of us. I started working at an organization, I will forever be grateful for this organization. I will forever be grateful for the executive director who would listen to me talk every day about life. This is miserable, that's miserable. This person, that person, sometimes he would even be some of what I was frustrated about and he listened so gracefully. And there came a day where he stopped. I will never forget this. I will never forget how I felt, he stopped. He leaned forward, he put his hand on my knee and he said, Danielle, I wanna tell you something. You talk about food and eating like I used to talk about heroin and using. I am a person in recovery. And at that time he'd been in recovery for I think 13 or 14 years. And he said, I think you need to attend meetings. And he printed off a meeting list for the area that I was living in that time for Overeaters Anonymous. And he even said, I will give you an hour to go and explore a meeting, a work time. 
And I will, I will never forget that. It was one of the kindest things ever. And I oftentimes tell him, he and I talk every now and again, I tell him how he saved my life and being honest about his own recovery. And he never said to me, you know, get to a meeting, that's all you need to do. He offered it up to me in a very graceful way. I'd never heard of recovery before. I'd never heard of Overeaters Anonymous or any other 12-step fellowships before he, he introduced me to it. And I went to a meeting. And I remember going to a meeting and I was looking around and I was like, this doesn't feel right for me. And it's funny now, but I was thinking these people have issues with food. I don't know if I belong here kind of thing. <laughs> and I giggle about that, right? De just being delusional. And I left that meeting and I didn't go back to another OA meeting for several months. And I still can't even tell you all what prompted me to go back to the meeting when I did. All I knew is it was the Thanksgiving holiday in the U.S. And I did what I always did for the holiday. I ate and ate and ate until I felt sick to my stomach. And then I went to sleep and then I woke up and I ate more. And that's what I always did. And so that following Monday... I found a meeting that was close to my workplace and I went and I remember sitting there and I cried. I cried the entire meeting. Everything I heard for some reason in that particular meeting really landed with me. And it was shortly after that I asked someone to sponsor me. Um, and a big part of my story as well, recovery story, is that I'm a runner. Some of my past, I've been a runner. I get scared. I figure out what is happening in a moment and I think okay I'm out of here and so I asked someone to sponsor me she and I started to talk about recovery and what meal planning could look like and so on and so forth and I decided for myself that that was the opportune time for me to move to Alaska I'd never lived in Alaska before I'd never met anyone from Alaska I applied for a program there that would allow me to volunteer in um, a program there that serviced indigenous youth and so I said, I'm going to Alaska. I quit my job. I put everything that I had in storage and I moved to Anchorage, Alaska. I got to Anchorage and I will tell you all everywhere we go, there we are. So I was just a cold ass compulsive overeater in Anchorage, Alaska. But what happened for me is I came in contact with someone who became like my surrogate mother for the time I spent in Alaska who had been in recovery in AA for over 30 years and sober. And she had been in OA for, I, I believe, five years or so at that time. And she became my sponsor. And she's the first person that I ever worked through the steps with. She took me through the first five or six steps. And I remember sitting down with her again, graceful, wonderful. I've never felt more accepted period like and I sat down with her and I read over this entire fourth step that I wrote down and I'm not exaggerating I think it was probably 20 plus pages of me just writing about life about fear about hurt about anger about angst about stealing things about physically you know harming myself and others like just all kinds of stuff that I'd never shared with anyone before. And she said, and she listened, and she said, and I believe that we were going through that for probably five or six hours or so. And she said, and she said, and she listened, and she said, and afterwards we had an abstinent dinner together. And she said, how's it feel 
<laughs> and I, I didn't even have words for it. And she also, and she used to call me kiddo, you know, just very, very incredible human being. And she's just like, I want you to know, kiddo, you didn't share anything that's never, I've never thought, I've never done or felt or said, et cetera. You're okay. And I wish I could say that from that moment, I was struck abstinent and I felt great. And I did. And I think I left her house and I went and I ate compulsively because I'd never shared that depth of emotion with anyone before. But it was the start. It was the start of me coming to realize how I had used food my entire life to not feel feelings and that there were other ways that I could go about this. And so I spent my time there in Alaska. I went back to my hometown where um, I was born and raised and my family was there. And I really started working my program. I got absent. I worked with a sponsor. I had a meal plan. She, my sponsor and I, we connected in person once a week. We connected over phone sometimes two and three times a day because me learning how to live life without eating food is, was definitely like a toddler learning how to get up on my legs and walk for the first time without any kind of assistance in that way. And for about almost five years, I was abstinent. I released a little over 180 pounds. I was going with it. I was being seen in the community as some big deal because I let the weight, you know, I released the weight. I was on this pink cloud, right? Like, wow, look at me. And everyone would come to me, what have you done? You look so amazing. And it went to my head, of course. And Henko packaging? When, FBG. I think that's Cindy. Hello, Cindy. It went right to my head, all of this. And again, like I told you all, I'm an absolute runner. So after five years of working an incredible program and being, I was also on inner group for a few years. I had service positions. I had sponsees more than I probably could, should have had at that time, actually. And then I decided for myself, okay, I no longer want to live in this area. I am moving to the South of the U.S. I need to get away from here. And so I did. I, again, quit my job sold a big portion of what I had. And once I got to the area, I thought, okay, I've arrived, right? I don't have to do the things that I've had to do to maintain my abstinence. And so I slowly watched myself start to go in reverse. It started here with, oh, I put back on five pounds. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I weigh myself once monthly. Oh, okay. There, I put back on 10 pounds. Okay. I'm not going to go to as many meetings as I've been going to. I'll go to a meeting a week kind of thing. And we know where that went. And, and after a while, I was back in relapse. And the interesting thing I'll share with you all, I haven't had a dessert, a piece of cake, candy, anything like that with sugar in it for almost 10 years. So relapse looked very interesting this time around. It looked like skyscraper plates where I just couldn't seem to get enough of what I was eating. It looked like seconds. It looked like me eating later in the evenings than I had started out doing. It looked like me not doing service positions like I once had. It looked like me not wanting to take calls from sponsees because I felt like I didn't have anything to say to them because I wasn't working the program perfectly. It looked like all of these things as I slowly started to watch myself go back into who I knew myself to be with the food. And 
as I mentioned, I'm someone who likes to run. And I say that because it's a big part of my story and something that I work through just like I work through my compulsion to eating. I was there in the other area that I'd moved to for maybe almost three years and I met someone and I found them to be incredible and we got married after a year. And then I said, okay, I'm gonna move to Canada. And so that's where I am now. I moved to Canada, I got here. Again, everywhere we go, there we are. Compulsive eating followed me as well. Only now I'm married and trying to keep up a marriage. And also I'm more interested in my food than I am in my marriage is what it was like those earlier times. And so I started working with someone here as a sponsor and we just didn't, it didn't connect. And, there, and there's no fault on her part or mine. It just, the chemistry wasn't there. And so I would tell half truths, whole lies about what I was and was not eating and how often I was eating it and so on and so forth. And more of the same. And so finally, I got with the sponsor that I'm with now. We've been working together for a bit, a little over two years. I've been abstinent for a little over two years. Um, and even that sometimes I've been looking at, um, as of late, I, I went to the U.S. for several weeks and I found myself really wanting to take in some of the sugar-free. Thank you so much. I hear you. I've wanted, I saw myself want to take in more of the sugar-free dessert items that are there um, in the U.S. because we don't have access to a lot of that in Canada based on like some of what ingredients are legalized here and so on and so forth. And so I had to get really honest with my sponsor about some of my behaviors and where my mind was with some of this stuff while I was on vacation in the U.S. And we've talked through it. My food is, has been peaceful and sane since I've been back in Toronto. And I've been working the program one day at a time. And I will say that over these 10 years of me being here, initially it started out with, I'm someone who I can't eat sugar. I just can't like, and I have to be really mindful of that because it is, it is the cocaine for me. Once I put a little bit in there, I don't know where it will go. I may just be able to have that little bit and say, all right, I've had some sugar that was in there and I'll go on. Or I may be, okay, I need everything that I can get my hands on right now because that part of me has been activated in there that doesn't know how to turn itself off because sugar was the first love of my life, to be quite honest. So I work really hard at avoiding sugar. I also have to watch my portion sizes. And I realize now that it's a lot less about actually what's on my plate, but about what it, how it makes me feel emotionally. I have an emotional attachment to food and I've had to get really honest about that. There were certain ingredients, there were certain portion sizes, there were certain holidays with certain foods that were considered to be, you know, celebration foods. And I have to pay attention to this stuff because it activates those parts of me that's an addict a compulsive overeating addicted human being. And I also can see how it doesn't just stop with my food. I play the whack-a-mole game with other addictions. I picked up cigarettes for a while and I put the cigarettes down and the food goes up. The food and the cigarettes go down. Then I'm like interested in other people in a way that's not, you know, okay in my marriage. And so I'm constantly watching myself play with the whack-a-mole kind of thing and the only thing that helps with that is a higher power I call my higher power God and I've really had to continuously work on developing 
developing a relationship with some power greater than myself since I've been here in the rooms. And there were lots of things going on for me around the same time that I started my recovery. I'd also started meditating. I'd also started looking into a particular religious kind of um, setup, a religious background kind of thing where I've started meditating. I've started, I took five precepts and this and that. And that has come alongside my program and has like helped me with some guidance and how I want to be and who I want to be as I show up in the world. And I've worked through the steps probably four or five times fully from step one to step 12. And each time there are some amends that I've needed to make um, for various things that I've done. But I will say that it continues to get better. And I actually was on another meeting early this morning that I um, attend pretty regularly where we also meditate and we read um, program literature. And we talked about humility, right? When our higher power, God, whatever we call it for ourselves, removes some of these defects of character for us. We don't gloat or we don't, you know, think that we're better than or anything like that. We thank our higher power for taking these things away, knowing that there will be other things that will crop up at some point that we're also going to have to have taken away as well. And I've had to learn that, that I don't remove these things from myself. And I'm powerless over food, but I'm not powerless over footwork. So in the footwork is how I watch some of these things that have continuously kept me on a hamster wheel of sorts, remove themselves as I keep showing up and doing the work one day at a time. So I will say that I've watched my relationships continue to get better. I've watched myself be able to say I was wrong. I'm sorry. I've also watched myself be able to ask for more of what I need and say to others, hey, that hurt my feelings. Or hey, this is what I need. Because I also think that a big portion of why I didn't find myself, you know, very interested in being in connection with others and a little standoffish because I let people do whatever they wanted to do to me because I felt deserving of that kind of thing. And now I realize that it's okay for me to have needs. It's okay okay for me to ask for what I need. It's okay for me to center myself in some of what's going on in my, in my life and who I share my life with. So continues to be a work in progress one day at a time, but it starts with the food for me. And when the food is in its proper place, then I can look at some of these other things and work on getting them in their proper places as well. And more often than not, life is okay. Um, I will say that, that being able to share my, my story today Thank you, I hear you. Being able to share my story today has come at a time where I'm, I'm deeply in grief. I, I had my father die right at the top of COVID unexpectedly. I got to see him once before hospital shut down and he, he died. I had a really close friend of mine die of cancer a few months later. And then I had, um, I lost my baby in the second trimester. Um, and I'm just kind of, I'm all over the place, but I'm also realizing that even in grief, food is not the answer or any of these other ideas that I can come up with as the answer. But what has been the answer is community. What has been the answer is me talking about these things and how I'm feeling with a therapist, getting outside help. What has been the answer is me continuing to work at coming closer to my partner and being able to talk through some of this. Um, yeah, sleep, getting rest has been the answer. Crying, letting myself feel my feelings, that's been the answer. And taking myself out of the way as best as possible has also been the answer. So it's a continued work in progress one day at a time.
that's it for me, you all. Thanks for letting me share my story with you this morning. Oh, Danielle, that was just beautiful. Thanks so much. And I always like to read a wee um, paragraph. I ask God to give me a paragraph after um, from the big book. So I'm just going to read this. We are taught to differentiate. Sorry, it's called To Handle Sobriety. It's one of the stories in the big book, page 559. We are taught to differentiate between our wants, which are never satisfied, and our needs, which are always provided for. We cast off the burdens of the past and the anxieties of the future as we begin to live in the present one day at a time. We are granted the serenity to accept the things we cannot change and thus lose our quickness to anger and our sensitivity to criticism. Above all, we reject fantasizing and accept reality. The more I drank, the more I fantasized everything. I imagined getting even for hurts and rejections. In my mind's eye, I played and replayed scenes in which I was fucked magically from the bar where I stood nursing a drink and was instantly exalted to some position of power and prestige. I lived in a dream world. AA led me gently from this fantasizing to embrace reality with open arms, and I found it beautiful. For at last, I was at peace with myself and with others and with God. 